she got a cold. Okay. Okay, this morning we're in Esther chapter 3, and we'll be starting in verse 6. So let's open with a word of prayer first. Father God, we thank you for uh, uh, your word. We thank you that we can study and see um, how you work with your people. We study and, and in this we can see your your protection for your people. Uh, we also see the uh, age-long struggle between uh, Satan wanting to usurp your authority and and see how you um, you resist that. You use the uh, your people in this sense, uh, Esther and Mordecai, to um, to stop his attack. And and we just pray as we go through this, we can we can see how this works out. We thank you for this uh, Christmas morning and the chance to celebrate the incarnation. And we'll maybe see how that works in with our lesson this morning. Lord, let's pray you'll bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we'll do it. Uh, reading is in chapter 3. How about if we start in verse 1 and read through verse 15 this morning. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of whatever, the adjudicate, elevating him and giving him the seat of honor higher than any of the others, other nobles. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did neither bow down nor pay homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the Hazarus' kingdom. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. They, their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is, it, is not in the, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also, to do with them as you please. And the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps to the governors who were over each province and to the princesses of each people 
speak Proverbs according to its script, and <coughs> people according to its language, being written in the name of King Jerusalem, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters are sent by couriers to lead to the royal provinces, telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Medar, the 12th month. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the people so that they could be ready for this day. The couriers went out, spurred by, on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel at Susa. The king of Haman, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa would be watered. Okay, so last week, we, at the end of chapter 2, we saw that uh, Mordecai had foiled a, an assassination plot against King Ahasuerus. And two details that are important. One is that his, his name was written down in the official records as the one who foiled the plot. And secondly, he was not rewarded for it. So in a few more chapters, that'll come up and be important. <coughs> so we began chapter 3, and this introduces Haman. Uh, and we, we saw that it, it calls him an Agagite. And that could be linked back to King Agag of the Amalekites, back during the time of King Saul. And the Amalekites were the enemies of the Jews. They were the tribe that attacked them when they left Egypt, and they were in the wilderness. The Amalekites t attacked them. That was the one where Moses had to keep the staff raised up over his head. That was during the battle with the Amalekites. Um, but Haman has been promoted uh, to be basically the second uh, highest official in the kingdom after only the king. And he wanted everyone to bow to him and honor him and worship him. But Mordecai refused. Uh, we saw it's probably because as a Jew... Under the law, the Mosaic law, he could not worship anyone other than God. And that's the probable reason why he refused. <clears throat> but the, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> so, Haman reacts with rage, as it says in the end of verse 5, he was filled with rage. So this morning we're starting at 6. It says, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone for... They had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who are throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So it's not enough for Haman just to kill Mordecai. He wanted to wipe out the entire Jewish race, all of them. I think he was happy and, just Haman and just with Mordecai until he found out who he was. Oh, here's an right. opportunity. He's, yeah. I can use this. So why does he want to kill all the Jews? Possibly because if Mordecai did not bow because he was a Jew, then none of the other Jews would bow to him. So it's unlikely he'd run into them, but you know that's, that's possibly one of the reasons. The other thing is we've talked about the Malachites were the enemy of the Jews. You know, this is a long-standing... Uh, um, Blood feud, yeah, and we'll we'll, we'll look at that again later. Um, but 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 it also goes back to I 
I said, you know, it's Christmas. How do we tie this in with the incarnation? When, when Satan fell, it was because he wanted to usurp God. He wanted to rule as God. And so that struggle began. I mean, for, we, we know for Satan it's futile. He's already been, he's already lost the conflict. Um, and I, I think he's, he's a deceiver and I think he's deceived himself. But he continues to struggle. And throughout time, he's tried to win different battles. You know, he deceived Eve in the garden. And, and so Adam and Eve fell and, and he, he usurped some of their authority. Um, he, I think he basically worked to pollute the entire human race. And so in Genesis 6, God wiped them out with a flood. As time went on, it was going to be through Abraham that the promise would be fulfilled. And so it, it wasn't through Ishmael, but it was through the promised son, Isaac. So when Sarah was supposed to be getting pregnant with Isaac, where was she? She's in the harem. Abimelech, yeah, had seized her and was... So she was in his harem when she was supposed to be getting pregnant with the promised son. So we see all these things throughout history. Um, and again, it was going to be the seed of David. You go through Jewish history, and they had a lot of kings, but they had one queen, Athaliah. It was the queen of Judah. She was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And she destroyed, she basically killed all her male offspring. She killed all her sons, all her grandsons, except one was hidden, Josiah. So again, that would have destroyed the line of David. So we see over and over again these attacks by Satan. And I think this one here through um, Haman is just another attack. Wipe out the Jews and the seed of woman will be destroyed. Because, you know, we know from Genesis 3.15, it's the seed of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. So we see these continual attacks throughout the Jewish history where Satan is trying to wipe out first the human race and then the line of Abraham and then the Jewish line and then the, the um, line of David and it keeps narrowing down. And finally, uh, Christ comes incarnate and he enters Judas in order to put him to death. And he thinks, okay, I've won. <laughs> but in that, you know, he, in, in what he thought was his victory was his defeat. When Christ died on the cross, he defeated Satan. So this does tie in as part of the whole story of incarnation and the coming of the, the seed of woman. Okay, now, one of the reasons Haman is possibly taking this into his own hands to kill Mordecai was that um, he, if he had not done that, if he'd probably gone through the court system, he may have lost. Again, this was the king's command that all bowed to Haman. So Mordecai had violated the law, Haman could have had him arrested and taken to the king's court. 
but we see in verse 4, it says, um, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. So his reason for not bowing had to do with his religion. Would the court grant Mordecai a religious exemption? It's very possible. And Haman couldn't take that risk. So he took it into his own hands. He bypassed the legal process and just ordered them all killed. Okay, going on to verse 7. So in the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. So Haman's decided, you know, he wants to eliminate the entire Jewish race. Now he wants to, t- to determine what's the most favorable day to do this according to his gods. When would they show favor on him and grant him success? And so they, they do this by casting lots. And the Hebrew word for lot is pur, and the plural is purim. And so that's where the name of the feast comes from, the Feast of Purim. And it says they begin to do this in the first month of Ahasuerus' 12th year. So Esther became queen in the 10th month of his 7th year. So she's been queen for four years and about three months at this time. Now it's not uncommon at all for kings and rulers, pagan rulers, to... uh, seek their directions from their gods in order to determine either the most favorable course of action or the best time to do something when the gods would grant them favor. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 21. We will see an example of this. Ezekiel chapter 21 Someone like to read verses 19 through 22. As for you, son of man, make two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them will go out of one land and make a signpost, make it at the head of the way to the city. You shall mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbath of the sons of Ammon and to Judah into fortified Jerusalem. For the kings of Babylon stands at the parting of the way at the head of the two ways to use divination he shakes the arrows he consults the household idols he looks at the liver into his right hand came the divination Jerusalem to set battering rams to open the mouth for slaughter to lift up the voice with the battle cry to set battering rams against the gates to cast up ramps to build the siege wall Okay, so God tells Ezekiel basically to draw a map. It'll come out of Babylon, and then it'll come to a fork in the road. He can either go to Rabbah, which is the Ammonites, or he can go to Jerusalem. And so he stops to consult his gods. And it, it, it lists all these uh, things that he does here. Um, shakes the arrows. I think they say that you shake them and throw them out. It's like throwing dice in a way. Um, Consults the household idols. I'm not sure how they do that, but um, they try that. Uh, 
looks at the liver. That was, that's, that's interesting. Apparently the, the liver has spots and things on it. But they would have their, the priests or the astrologers would do this. That's why they, they were the king's consultants. They were the ones who would tell him what the best course of action was. And of course it was because they would consult with their gods by these different methods. Um, and God said, he's going to go to Jerusalem. That was God's plan. And so despite all this rigmarole that they went through, God had already determined that Nebuchadnezzar was attacking Jerusalem. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Okay. So, you know, God control, controls dice. <laughs> he controls the casting of the arrows and the whatever the livers told him. Liver yeah, liver spots. So, so. Yeah, God directed Nebuchadnezzar to attack Jerusalem. That was his plan. Um, I'd, I'd read a biography of Alexander the Great. He was always consulting the sacrifices. You know, were they favorable to this? Or, and they probably were looking at the liver or something like that. You know. Um, now, God tells us here in Proverbs that he determines the outcome of casting lots, of throwing dice, flipping a coin. Does that make it a legitimate part of decision-making? Do you remember the, the Jewish high priest had the Urim and Thummim? You know, they're not specifically described, but um, some people think it was like a white stone and a black stone. It was basically... It was like casting lots. And that's how God directed the Jews. Let's look back at Joshua chapter 7. This is after they attack Jericho and Achan takes some of the forbidden items. Joshua chapter 7. Someone like to read verse 13 for us. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are, there are devoted things among you, Israel. That you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Okay, and 14 also. That's really the verse I wanted. 14 also, please, yeah. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe of the Lord chooses um, shall, shall come forward <coughs> clan by clan. <coughs> Excuse me. And the clan the Lord chooses shall um, come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Okay. <coughs> the um, New American Standard says that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. The by lot is added, but that's what's understood here. You know, they may have used the Uman and Thummim. You know, you bring the, the tribe forward and 
If you get the white stone, you're innocent. If you get the black stone, you're guilty. So they go through the tribes and they go through the families and then, but God directs them to Achan. <coughs> Let's look at Numbers chapter 26. Numbers chapter 26. Someone would like to read 52 through 56. That's one paragraph here. 52 through 56. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. To the larger group you shall increase your inheritance, and to the smaller group you shall diminish their inheritance. Each shall be given their inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall receive their inheritance according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the selection by lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller groups. Okay, so here's God's instructions. When you enter the land, you will divide it amongst the tribes, partially by size, partially by lot. And so the land was very important. To the Jews, that's the that's the promise was, it's, it was called the promised land, um, and so it was going to be distributed by lot. That was God's command. And one last passage. Let's go to Acts chapter one. Someone might guess what this one is, but Acts chapter one. Yeah, Acts one. I'm going to like to read verses 23 through 26. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. When they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this, this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where, where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Okay, so there's a New Testament example of the disciples casting a lot. Now, just because they did something in the book of Acts does not necessarily mean that they did the right things always. <laughs> that's what I always was thinking, because you never hear of Matthias again. I think God's choice might have been Paul. And, and they gave God a choice of, you know, God didn't want either one of them. <laughs> so, yeah. They did pray first, yes. but this probably is not the best principle for us. Right, right, right. <laughs> but it is, you know, I appreciate that you showed through Scripture how this was used, because I think sometimes it would be, you know, yeah. this, no way should this, and yet I, historically. Right. I'm going to say all the books I've read on decision-making do not include flipping coins or tossing dice. That God ultimately uh, controls it. But yeah, exactly. we're told that, yes. Yeah. Um, and so God ultimately uh, controlled that Matthias was chosen, even though we don't hear about him. Yeah, <laughs> and we don't really, you know, God doesn't tell us whether that was actually his choice or not. I think, you know, if we, if we get to heaven and there's 12 thrones with the 12 apostles, I'd be more, I'd think probably I'd see Paul sitting there rather than Matthias. That's, that's up to God. Um, 
one of the things I, you know, we run into decisions that you might as well make by flipping a coin. I know in engineering and designing things, when you look at, should I make this six inches or eight inches? <laughs> you have to make a decision. And, it's, and, and I learned a long time ago, you don't sweat over things like that. It doesn't make any difference. You know, if you've got a choice of one or the other, you might as well flip a coin and, and not have the mental strain of trying to make it one more decision that doesn't matter. One of my coworkers but, says if he has a 50-50 chance, he'll choose the wrong one 90%. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually how it works out for me. Yes, that's true. That's, that's true. You have to just make up some kind of a rule because decision-making is stressful, even little ones. So, yeah. I think if you've gone through and analyzed and prayed and asked for the you know, wisdom and, and it's still one or the other, go ahead and flip a coin. Especially if it doesn't matter much. So Now the commentaries do say that this whole process here uh, was probably being done by the astrologers and the, uh, other consultants, the advisors, uh, that they're the ones who cast a lot. And that's really what their job was. He wasn't the one casting lots. Now the verse says it was done day by day and month by month. And it says the twelfth month was selected. So this is, they're in the first month and the lots select the twelfth month. So that's a long way off, eleven months away. Um, it does not tell us here what day it was, but we'll see in a few more verses that it was the thirteenth day of the twelfth month. Now this might be yeah, Friday the 13th. Maybe where 13 got to be a bad bad number. The 13th of the month was that day. Um, now I was thinking, well maybe this is God's providence because it gives, them, gives the Jews 11 months to prepare for this. As it turns out, they only needed three. Um, so they, Mordecai responded fairly quickly to this. Okay, going on to verses 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other peoples, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. So Haman's decided what he wants to do, and now he, he, he does need the king's permission to go out and kill possibly millions of the king's subjects. He can't do that on his own. So he's kind of softening up the king here and persuading him. Now he, he hasn't said what his plan is here, but... Um, He's trying to make it sound like he wants to do the king a favor. Um, you know, King Ahasuerus, there's this group of people who may be a threat to your sovereign rule out there. Now, one of the things that we see is they're not geographically localized. Um, when um, Ahasuerus first became king, he had a rebellion in Babylon. He could send an army 
they could, you know, it was a localized problem. They could defeat their leaders, quell a rebellion. Now this is, this is people scattered all over um, his whole uh, empire. Um, and this scattering is really uh, something that God prophesied and did. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26 is a chapter that talks about, I think, the, the blessings of obedience and the cursing of disobedience. So Leviticus 26, someone like to read verse 33 for us. Okay, so this is the consequence of disobedience. When you when you read that, it's the latter two thirds of the chapter is the consequences of disobedience, and it is God basically tells us what's going to happen in, during the history of uh, the Jews. They get scattered. God tells them He's going to scatter them. And let's look at Ezekiel, chapter eleven. Ezekiel chapter 11. Someone like, someone like to read verse 16 for us. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, Yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Okay. So this is, you know, centuries after Leviticus. Um, nine or ten centuries later. And God says, I did this. You know, what I told you I was going to do in Leviticus, I have done. I've scattered them. But at the same time, um, he does say, yet I was a sanctuary for them in the countries where they'd gone. God still is watching over his people. You know, he's carrying out the discipline, but he's still, they're God, they're still his people, and he's watching over them. So getting back to Esther, Haman is painting a picture of the Jews like some kind of a systemic infection. You know, it's scattered throughout the whole body, you know, and again, it's, it's not like a, something localized, like, you know, you can't take it out like Babylon, was, was destroyed by an army. So Haman's going to propose a scheme to cleanse the empire of this infection. Um, so he describes his people, uh, they have different laws than everyone else, and they refuse to obey the king's laws. Uh, and he implies that their influence is going to spread to others, and that's going to raise the threat of a general rebellion across the empire. Now, some of this is true. To make a lie sounds good, you have to have some truth mixed in with it. They did have the law of Moses. And where there was a conflict, they had to obey the law of Moses rather than the laws of the empire. But in general, the Jews were very good citizens because that was also part of God's command to them was you obey the king. Um, 
And we've got examples. Daniel, um, Nehemiah, they were both raised to very important positions in their governments because they were good servants of the king. They were reliable. They carried out their duties. They were faithful. The king did not have to worry about them getting together with the, somebody and assassinating them. You know, he could trust them. Nehemiah especially. He was the um, cupbearer. Yeah, that's... <laughs> He was the last uh, resort between uh, the king and poison. So in general, they were good citizens. So Haman is really exaggerating here. The other thing that he does not mention is that they're Jews. It's just this people group. There's some kind of a people group out there, king. And, and uh, you know, he probably needed to get the... King Ahasuerus to make more of a commitment or some kind here and then he could trap him into specifically killing the Jews. But you don't want to give the king too much information here up front because he may decide that I don't want to do this. Um, well, we don't know if the king maybe knows who Esther because you know, it's been five years, you said, that Esther's been queen? It's, it's a little over four. Okay, a little more than four. Yeah. So, I guess probably he doesn't know yet. But. Right, he probably doesn't know that Esther's a Jew. So. I always think back when I started my career with Weyerhaeuser, but there was some kind of big project, and it had to be, it was big enough that it had to be approved by the vice presidents of the company, and so I had come up with basically six different options. <clears throat> and the local VP looked at that and he says, no, you don't want to give them too many options. <laughs> Let's cut it down. Let's just give them one or two, you know. Don't give them six options. They can't handle that. <laughs> or, or you'll have six of them vote for two. Right, options. yeah. Too much information. They can't handle it. And I think that's kind of the way, hey, you know, I wasn't trying to deceive the vice presidents, but... Uh, I think that's kind of what Haman is doing here. Let's just feed him enough information to get him to give me the decision I want at the time. And then as we get further down the road, he won't be able to change. Now, what was the, what was the actual original problem? Mordecai you know, wasn't feeding his ego. Right. It was right. Mordecai, Mordecai was not bowing to him. So now what do we have here? We have a problem that's going to destroy the whole empire, right? Is that what he's presenting? There's going to be a universal rebellion across your whole empire? Well, Haman's pride, and then he's trying to dish it off on the king. Yeah. Yeah. Have we had that before in this book? Vashti wouldn't come when ordered. Yeah. And uh, what was his name? Mamukan was the one who said, hey, the whole society is going to be disrupted because all the wives are going to rebel against their husbands and it's going to be a kingdom-wide problem. Yeah, they just they blow things out of proportion to try to get the king to agree to, to something. Um, We're going to be a salesman. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things the commentaries <laughs> pointed out is Ahasuerus really should have asked a lot more questions <laughs> <laughs> before he agreed. That's, that's something I learned when I started my job. I was told by my mentor, ask questions. 
have questions. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go back to Ezra chapter four, and we'll see another example of exaggeration here on a, <clears throat> when they're going to the king for a decision. Ezra chapter four. Would someone like to read verses eleven through sixteen? This is the copy of the letter which they sent to him, to King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the king. Now, because we are in the service of the palace and it's not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore we have sent and informed the king so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers and you will discover in the record books and learn that that city is a rebellious city and damaging the kings and provinces and that they have incited revolt within it in past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. We inform the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finish, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Okay. So the Jews just wanted to protect themselves from the surrounding people. And so they tell the king, oh, they're, gonna, they're revolting against you. The whole province is going to go into revolt. And, and so this is a bad thing. So they're blowing it all out of proportion. And of course, they're looking out for the king's interests, right? No, they're really looking out for their own interests. They were making money off the deal, and they wanted to keep on doing that. So we see that over and over again, uh, the deceit, the lying that goes on with, uh, in politics. Um, you know, really helps us. You know, we really were told pray for our leaders mm -hmm. because they're constantly, whether we agree with their political standing or not, they're constantly they're been, getting this. Yes. You know, you know, a good man or a bad man is constantly faced with buying um, pressures. Yes, yes. And they can't look at all the details. Um, I keep forgetting his name. The, the president who is had been the governor of Georgia. Oh, Huckabee. Pardon? The president. He's he's back. Oh, Before. Carter. 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 Yes, yeah, Jimmy Carter. Carter. I'm sorry. We we listen to some that, Huckabees. His his problem was that he tried to look into all the details. You know he, you know, and he asked too many. <laughs> you know, and he just got overwhelmed. So. Yeah, you're right. The president gets all this information coming on him from all these different people. And who knows what their motivations are? Okay, well, I'm not quite done with this section, but uh, we're out of time. So, so we'll finish these. We'll finish these two verses off next time. Okay. Brian, would you like to close in prayer for us? Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this.
this word that shows us the history of your people and how you do, you know, protect them, even though you try to punish them for them, of course, not paying attention to you. And we want to thank you for the protection you provide for us. And please be with Pastor Robert and his message in the next hour to come. And may our hearts and minds be open to hear your word and what you have for us to learn from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.